If you guys can hear me fine, then I'm then I'm happy. I can hear all of us. Are we all in different places tonight? Actually, uh, we all yes. In, yeah, yeah. We in, uh, Steve and I are in two different rooms, separate rooms. <laughs> okay. Because I don't want to see Paul's face when I have my fucking Moray kick his Shark 9000's ass. Wow, uh, he has a Shark 9000? You mean my fucking Moray kicking your Shark 9000's ass? <laughs> you mean my fucking Moray kicking my Shark 9000's ass? Yes. <laughs> Yo, this is episode 27 of G.I. Joburg. And in this episode, we reintroduce our famous battles topic. The scorecard as it stands. In episode 18, the Hiss beat the Mobat. The Sea Ray beat the Shark. And the Night Attack Copter beat the Mumba. In episode 19, the Rhino beat the Dominator. The Terradrome beat the 1983 G.I. Joe headquarters. Therefore, Cobra lead by three points to two. In this episode, we take ourselves into the aquatic realm and the arctic wasteland to find out who will reign supreme. Can the Joes bring it back from the edge of oblivion? Or will Cobra come out on top? Even big bad Cobras need air conditioning. Thanks, Mercer. Right, <laughs> folks, we're finally back in the mix. It's me, Steve. Uh, it's Paul here, sounding gruff. Rob, as always, sounding like a little girl. <laughs> or as we like to call him, the professor. Yes. Paul, <laughs> oh, the badass. Uh, if you guys don't know what we're referring to, it is, of course, to the very recent launch of our YouTube channel. Type G.I. Joburg into your YouTube search box, and what will you see? At the moment, you'll see two videos on our channel, as of today being the recording date of the 7th of October, 2013. G.I. Joburg has posted a review on the 1987 Cobra Mamba and the 1991 General Hawk. Soon to be followed by the Mean Dog with Card, the Phantom X-19 with Ghost Rider, the Pursuit of Cobra Vamp, and a couple of sideshow figures, or dollies, as I like to call them, which uh, Paul and Rob are quite interested in reviewing and bringing to you guys. The format of our review is basically a three-handed take on some of the finest G.I. Joe toys out there, where we try and give its history, its function, and its merits as a toy... As succinctly as possible. I mean, we try and keep our reviews under 10 minutes and very little shaky camera work and hands in the frame. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Steve, <laughs> for being our camera guy. Well, it's been a blast, I must say. I mean, it's a new way of playing with my toys, essentially. I've basically started out with a very uh, modest setup, a tripod and an iPhone and a little bit of a light tent. But it's a good point of departure, and I think our images are crisp and clean, and our voiceovers are getting there. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited to keep it going, fellas, and hopefully dabble in some of the properties that the more professional G.I. Joe uh, reviewers out there have missed out on. To my mind, the finest reviewer of vintage G.I. Joe figures and vehicles is Form BX257, a guy by the name of Kevin, Canadian chap, very cool guy. Uh, very well informed about G.I. Joe and with the most outstanding collection. Well, friends, 
you know, I, I'm going to let you down gently. Our collections, even cumulatively, don't really approach the size of his. But we have a handful of very interesting toys that he's missed out on, particularly because I think he's kept his reviews with 1986 toys. He started with a few 1987 toys by doing the Renegades figures from uh, the 1987 G.I. Joe movie, that being Tunnel Rats and Jinx and Law and Order and uh, Falcon. Am I leaving anyone out? I'm, 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 I can't think of anything. <laughs> well, I'd say Big Lob, but of course there was no 1987 figure of Big Lob. Oh, Chuckles, of course, yes, Chuckles. Chuckles. He was a Renegade, though he didn't say anything and he just kind of popped caps with his 45, his laser 45 from the top of a tomahawk, which he kick-started. <laughs> with his bare hands. What a stud. What a stud. What a mischaracterized character. <laughs> I would never have wanted him if he if he was characterized like that in the comics. Chuckles is one of those characters that I just totally love and uh, always felt there was something a little bit more to him than what the movie sort of made him out to be. Even as a kid, I was always like, huh? Can't be right. You know. And yet, not a popular figure, as I'm led to believe. Bit of a peg warmer. And now, thanks to excellent characterization in an almost dedicated comic book run, that being G.I. Joe Cobra of the last two years, I think, he's shot up in popularity stakes and still rocks the Miami Vice shirt. Yes. Well, oh, what am I saying? <laughs> Hawaii, Hawaii 5 Hawaii 5 shit. <laughs> well, hell, I mean, you know, my, my American pop knowledge has to have its limits somewhere. I mean, I didn't even watch these shows. Yeah, I don't even watch the new one. I love the theme song. But anyway, enough about that. Actually, great, you know, segue there. Hawaii, a beautiful island surrounded by the ocean, but no battles on the ocean. Let's put some... Badass battle boats on that ocean. Ah, uh-huh. I think what Paul is trying to say is, in the conflict between two of G.I. Joe's fiercest aquatic vessels and two of Cobra's fiercest aquatic vessels, damn it, I ran out of adjectives real quick, <laughs> who will win? In the Joe Corner, we have the Shark 9000, ding ding, piloted by Cutter. And a few other assorted naval G.I. Joe specialists. And supporting that vehicle, we have the Devilfish. Then in the Cobra Corner, we have the Moray. And in support, the Cobra Piranha. I wanted to say something <laughs> smart there about Cutter and his codename. I have to wonder, how does he get that codename? Uh, I think a Cutter is a very quick old um, sailing boat. So he's a quick... Old sailing boat. No, I don't know. <laughs> there, are guy, a, there are guys called answer. Skidmark in GI Joe. <laughs> I think the idea is not to scrutinize the code names too carefully. I mean, let's face it; they probably weren't responsible for their own code names either. Because yeah, true. Well, I mean, see, that's an interesting point. Do you think the Joes picked their own names, or were they just call signs that became code names, became married to the operative? as their real name became phased out because of, I suppose, G.I. Joe's confidentiality and secrecy. Yeah, I mean, maybe Shipwreck and Torpedo and Deep Six all got drunk one night with um, a soon-to-be cutter, and he was getting pulling all the ladies because he could really wait for it. Cut a rug. Oh, dear. 
<laughs> That's quite a cutting remark you just made. That's right. You guys should just cut me out of this shit. <laughs> I love how witty we are. But now I'm wondering, should we start with Amore? Or should we start with a devilfish? Well, let's talk about stats, firstly. The speeds at which these craft move is in and around the 40 to 50 knot range, except the moray. Because of its hydrofoil feature, and essentially its jet engine, that puppy can race along the waves at a speed approaching 100 knots. That would be 100 nautical miles per hour. It's really fast. It is fast. Although, interestingly enough, on the blueprints, the thing that has the most powerful engine is the Piranha by at least 11,000 horsepower. Yeah, that's fast. And and it's on water. The Cobra Piranha has a 12,000 horsepower aqua power plant engine. While the Hydrofoil only has a 775 horsepower gasoline engine. The piranha is kind of like a rocket. It's kind of like the mean dog of the ocean. I mean, it's it's a boat with a rocket strapped in its ass. So essentially, it's a rocket boat. Okay, cool. I imagine that would actually make it the quickest boat under consideration. Mm. But that kind of engine and putting out that kind of horsepower severely limits its range, surely. So this craft, I mean, it's a kind of a quick strike vehicle. It's not out there to loiter for a while. Whereas the G.I. Joe approach is a little bit more conservative, perhaps. They definitely have superior range, as far as I'm concerned. I speak mainly about the Shark 9000, because, of course, the Devilfish is a small craft that would not engage targets on the high seas so much, but more the shallows of smaller waterways, rivers, streams, estuaries, lakes... So, on the high seas, essentially, it's between the Moray and the Shark 9000. Yeah. Because yeah. they're like the bigger boys as well. They would be more the... Yeah, they'd be the bigger movers. They'd move more people. They would uh, essentially do more damage by themselves. Not that important that they can move too fast, but good that they do move fast for what they are. Yeah. And they're also very well equipped. You know, they both have depth charges. They both have torpedoes. So, I mean... These guys are very well kitted, the Hydrofoil and the Shark 9000. In fact, it seems like they're quite balanced in a lot of regards, except, of course, the Hydrofoil's Hydrofoil setup. Mm. So does anyone have uh, any kind of opening round on which they assume would come out on top? The Shark itself is very Cobra-looking in its design. I don't know if you guys feel that from its lines and even its color use. It's... It's very cobra. I don't know what? about you guys. The fact that it's white. That's it's white just, and purple? That just screams Coast Guard. It's white and blue. Is it blue? Okay, yeah. sorry. Just the image I'm looking at is purple. Uh, it looks purplish. Well, um, thank you, Paul, for doing your research for this episode. Hey, <laughs> I am... I, I sadly don't have one of these bad boys in my position. Um, I have my dear sister, who's actually expecting, and by the time this episode comes out, she might be very close to giving birth to my newest niece or nephew, uh, who's to know, but she uh, went to the States to ostensibly do a kind of a dance tour. She wanted to train in um, some of the top uh, American ballet schools, and this was when she was in, I think, grade 
11 or grade 10. Yeah, I was about to say, because the way you were presenting that, it sounded like you are saying, yeah, she's well, pregnant, she's pregnant and she's right dancing. now, and she was going to go dancing. <laughs> no, this was about two decades ago. Anyway, she came back with the Shark oh, no. 9000, and that was a sick, sick gift. I mean, that was a rather large box, actually. It's quite a large vehicle. How did she... Wow, that's... That was very generous of her, I must say. And, I mean, it's not like she was rolling in the dough. She was a school child herself. And yet she got me this awesome, awesome toy. Though, in the same breath, I don't know if she was aware of it. I'd like to think she wasn't. But the toy had been tampered with. Someone had gotten inside the box. I found a piece of chewing gum stuck inside. And (laughs) the blueprints, sticker sheet, and some of the parts were missing. One of the shark pedos, one of the halves of the depth charges i mean eh, it didn't give me a very glowing indication of what i suppose american toy buying culture was like even back then you had people opening up boxes going through the contents and taking things out i mean it's i'll have those uh, i'll just leave a little bit of a gum in here for the next person who finds it (laughs) yeah i don't know dude Scalpers were alive and well in 1994. I think you should be glad she didn't bring home Chucky. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who have seen um, the Child's Play movies and seen how the little kid's uh, mom gets her her hands on Chucky, I'm really glad that your sister opted for the shark. (laughs) Because it could have been worse for you. I'm just saying. (laughs) But anyway... At least I found that funny. Um, <laughs> and Rob found that a little bit amusing. <laughs> I have an uh-huh. interesting statistic that I've just uncovered. Uh, thanks to the G.I. Joe vs. Cobra Essential Guide by Pablo Hidalgo. This book is not without its faults. Let me just preface with that. There are a number of problems that I have with the book, particularly with the technical stuff. But those problems are rife throughout G.I. Joe. You know, it's, it's symptomatic of the blueprints. It permeated the order of battle that they put out in the mid-80s. And a lot of the errors are still alive and well today. But according to him and his collation of all the data, I was wrong by saying that the G.I. Joe craft outranged the Cobra craft. Because just to take the Moray and the Shark, for example... The Shark 9000 is capable of 300 nautical miles. That's no mean feat. The Moray can do 125 miles better than that. And I'm referring to nautical miles as well. So the Moray can do 425 nautical miles in spite of its extremely highly consumptive um, hydrofoil engine. I guess in order to do 425 nautical miles, she's got to stay hull-borne and not foil-borne. Yeah, true. Um, so, because that obviously takes a lot of fuel. Sure, she'd be motoring around more conservatively. But their speeds are quite close parity, hull-borne. I mean, the Shark can do 45 knots, and the Moray can do 48 knots. And in terms of armaments, I mean, the Shark has a slight advantage in that its primary large-bore cannon is mounted on its top ring, and therefore has good visibility and can engage targets in 360 degrees, whereas the Moray's top-mounted cannon, it is a 50 cal machine gun. The Shark 9000's is actually a 
20 millimeter cannon. So you got one that's a lot faster in terms of firepower. I mean, a 20 millimeter cannon gives it better range. No, totally. So the shark would be able to bring its guns to bear a lot sooner than the moray would. And which would you feel is the most agile of the two? I mean, I'd say the shark's agility is definitely helped by the fact that it's carrying a, a 50 cal. That's a machine gun. And that means it can strafe. The, the, the moray's got the 50 cal. Oh, the moray's got the 50 cal. Sorry, then I misheard. Sorry, mm-hmm. listeners. Um, well, then that gives the moray quite a good um, reflex point. I mean, it, it makes it fairly snappy in terms of combat. I mean, it's it's designed to sort of get in, get close, and strafe an enemy vessel. Once the moray is able to bring its twin 50s to bear, by that stage, you're well within the range of the Shark 9000's twin that's chain guns. That's very true. The Shark has a pair of miniguns, port and starboard, which have reasonably good um, arcs of fire. I mean, you'd be able to broadside anyone quite easily. If they were converging on one another, you would definitely be able to find the moray within your field of fire of those miniguns. It almost sounds like they're coming to a stalemate. I wonder what's going to break it. In the back of the moray, in the back of the moray, you've got four thirties. That's four independently operated thirty caliber machine guns. So you've got four guys in the back there also training their guns on the Shark 9000, ready to just start drilling it. Because I mean, at the speed that these guys are going, the torpedoes are null and void. So you can immediately divorce the Shark 9000's Shark torpedoes. And the Moray's two hull-mounted acoustic torpedoes. Immediately, the angular uh, launch surface swimming black ray torpedoes. That thing. <laughs> black ray torpedoes. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> you can immediately divorce those from the fight because neither of these vessels are moving slowly enough for a torpedo to hit. Well, the cool thing about the hydrofoil though is it comes with two air-to-water missiles. Mm-hmm. Which means if it can get a lock on the Shark 9000, fire those things off. I mean, that's some heavy, heavy damage going on there. Well, I see your two missiles, and I raise you eight, which the Shark eight. 9000 possesses. Air to water missiles. Oh, there. Okay, I see what you mean. Like, it's that, like, that rocket pod. Yes, and of course the rockets, or missiles, I'd like to say, that are scattered around the body of the craft. It has two in its variable payload missile launcher, and then the others attach to the vessel on the flip-top flying deck. Or they like to call it the Sharkpedo storage bay. <laughs> That's the shark that likes little sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm that guy tonight. <laughs> Don't you mean a shark file? No, no, it's a, it's a Sharkpedo. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's somebody that likes little sharks. I do not understand your suffix use, sir. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm just looking at this on the shark, and its torpedoes look like little sharks. They it's do, sharkpedo. though. <laughs> they are quite cute. But yeah, so we've ruled out that any torpedo this won't happen, but maybe these air-to-water torpedoes could um, definitely favor the shark in, in some... Um, in a, in a conflict, that's pretty cool. I think this conflict would be over very, very quickly. It'll always come down to who gets the jump on who. But once you've drawn a bead on your opponent, it won't take long for the complementary weapons loadouts of either craft to reduce its quarry to a smoking husk. 
I know that this breaks stats in terms of uh, the vehicles, but I mean, we have to consider the human element here. I mean, with the crew captaining the Shark 9000, would they go balls to the wall on just one moray? In that regard, I mean, would they maybe conserve... Uh, would, they mer- would they try and show mercy, whereas the Cobras would show none? With the mores, I mean, traditionally, from what I understand in the... Uh, I suppose the cartoon is not always the best port of call, but you never see just one moray. They normally work in, like... Fleets uh, is the collective nine. I know but, you like to do this, Paul, and invoke Cobra's superior numbers, but like realistically, you've got two very well balanced craft and actually two very well balanced crew. If we hmm. treat Cobra with the kind of you know gravity that a realistic Cobra organization would have, these guys are not cowards or fools. In fact, just passing my eye over the Cobra hydrofoil pilot the Lamprey, his file card, I mean, these guys are graded at 03 or equivalent. That's a very high rank to be operating a speedboat. And they've achieved that rank by being the elite of the Cobra Eel units. So they have to be qualified eels and be the best of that sect of Cobra troopers. Essentially, they've done all this frogman training, done underwater demolitions and every other facet that is required for eel training and uh, has been operational as an eel for more than a year. I get what you're saying. I mean, I'm not trying to go too much in the sort of self-sacrificing vein, but it's more a case of, hypothetically, if these two went against each other, I do think the Shark 9000's maneuverability, I think it would outlast the moray in that regard. I think it could definitely flank a moray quicker than a moray could flank it. Mm. Uh, because the shark, I mean, just looking at it as well, it's got a shorter profile, so it doesn't have as much drag. The moray is aware of its profile. That's why it's got those guns in the back that point to the sides. So it's aware of that um, sort of element of itself. These two had to meet in open combat. Yeah, I think they would both sort of mix each other. I think the shark could evade a lot of the moray's uh, weaponry and all that and definitely take it out. I always typically think the moray is used as like a patrol boat or as some kind of command boat, even if it moves in the fleet. And if it was hunting them down and strategically, you know, there was a whole a bunch of them, I think the sharks would have the problem. I mean, they'd be able to definitely get a, a good salvo off. But I think, you know, the mores wouldn't suffer as many casualties. Uh, I think they would definitely work together better. And so, if it was a one-on-one scenario? Um, coming back to what I said earlier, I do think they would nix each other. I think, I, and I hate to say this because I love Cobra so much, but <laughs> I think I think the shark would nix the the moray first. The moray's just got a lot more to shoot at as well, which is a problem. Mode. I think it's, the moray sits lower in the water. Yeah, but still, there's just more to shoot at. I mean, if the moray shoots lower in the water, but you've got the shark, which is a smaller, it's it's a, it's a lot smaller to to draw a bead on. It's, I mean, it it. Will outmaneuver the the moray, sadly. I agree. The shark probably turns tighter circles. The moray is faster. It can bullet in one direction a lot quicker, but in a quite a tight turning duel, the shark will be able to cut inside of the moray's turn and outrange the moray with its gun, with yeah. its primary gun. I think. Yeah, it's water cannon. No, yeah. no, no, <laughs> the 20 millimeter beside the water cannon. Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> it will come down to an extremely decisive captain basically saying, listen, guys, the ship 
that we are engaging, we are in such close parity with it that we have to fire every salvo we possibly have in this opening engagement. Otherwise, it's anybody's guess as to who would come on top. The Moray would want to do the same thing, but in order to do that, it would have to turn for a head-on attack. Yes, I was yeah. actually going to say that just now. It's got an awesome payload of weapons, but they're all forward fire. The Moray, the Moray is designed to take on big ships or ports or fixed emplacements, yeah. whereas the Shark, it's not necessarily built to engage other Fost boats, well-armed cigarette boats, but it has that facet a lot more prominently. It is adaptable. It, it is amenable to doing that far more than the Moray is. Or not, no. not far more, but by a narrow margin. Like I said, the captain would just have to say, fire everything we got right now. We need to wipe that sucker off the map before he gets a chance to engage us. The 20 mil would open up. All of the, the missiles would be let fly. Yeah. And hopefully they'd smear the moray. Because if you don't smear it in that first uh, round, it's not going to give you a second chance. If the 9000 had to, for example, cut and run and leave its rear exposed. Sorry, no, <laughs> dodge that sounds. It would totally lose. That's one little thing about the moray. Even though it's all forward facing, the moray does seem to accommodate a rearward attack. Yeah, it does seem to defend its rear better. Mm, you uh, could swing the, two of the thirties to to cover the, the the aft, and of course the the ring mounted fifty cal would be able to swivel around to exactly, cover and, the, the rear. And from what I can see here on the blueprints here, it looks like the shark's primary drive is all in the rear. Uh, but it, it seems more exposed than the Moray. Yeah, uh, in the aft part of the 9000. It's just that big block at the end there. And I'm just trying to like just make sure I'm looking at these blueprints. Yeah, that, that yeah. rear sort of spoiler. It uses the propeller-driven, while yeah. the Moray is more of the jet propulsion. Yeah, if the Moray can do like hit and run, it'll probably stand a better chance against the Shark 9000. Or get up behind it. Though the Shark 9000 has a, as a, I've established, a slightly better standoff range. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Moray, I, I think it would even just make a, a much louder noise as well. I know it's like not really important, but I think the Shark 9000 would pick up that the Moray is coming for it quicker than the Moray would pick up a shark coming at it. I think the Moray gives off a much louder signature. All so. right. So is that three in favor of uh, the Shark 9000? It seems like it, hey? Would it sway your answer at all if we were engaging in rougher seas? Rougher seas? I think the mores are more designed to handle that because of the size of the hull and everything. They're cigarette boats. They're bigger boats. They're designed for that kind of range and for rougher water. But, you know, I don't the, know. Is... the fact that the Shark 9000 has sort of dual hull. Yeah, a twin hull design. It should be able to handle rough seas as well. And uh, perhaps be more stable on the water as well. Less chance of capsizing. Oh, true. Hey, as soon as that kind of element plays happens in combat, I mean, it's anybody's game. I think at that point they're still as evenly matched. Uh, it's just a matter of who's luckier. But I do agree that the shark, now that I'm looking at it and the points that you guys have made, I do think it'll most likely handle the rougher seas better. If there is one thing that I would give the moray, though, possibly is the Moray feels almost more versatile. The Shark 9000 definitely feels more like a fighter. The Moray, it just seems quite suited for an array of things, you know, taking out ships, tankers. It looks like it could hit um, beach in, in place, or beachhead emplacements, that kind of thing. 
maybe a little bit better than the shark could. And that is because it, it has a true capacity. And maybe if those air-to-water missiles that the Moray had were replaced with maybe air-to-ground or if that compartment was changed into like some kind of ballistic complement, like a long-range air-to-surface missile, I think the Moray's would be quite scary in that regard because you know it can provide the launch angle, which I think is pretty cool, which is something the shark doesn't really seem to have. Also, at the same time, doesn't seem like something the shark really needs. Thanks, Paul. Yep. <laughs> it almost becomes a moot point, I guess, because the big fish have kind of sorted it out for for us. Yeah. But if you threw the piranha and the uh, devilfish into the mix, would they have any effect on the outcome? I think that would change things dramatically. Right. The piranha would tip the scales in favor of cobra. Yeah, it would definitely add a, a, an irritating element for, for the 9,000. Definitely. As a that sort would... of a surprise attack element, I suppose. Yeah. Something that I only noticed while I was researching for this episode, there's such a nice symmetry between the piranha and the moray. These yes. vessels were meant to be complementary to one another. Yeah, the uh, coloring for starters. The coloring sorry. for starters and the the design, the snake yeah. design. Yes, yeah. the little decor they use. And even most naval vessels all have a similar form. But there is something very similar between the moray and the piranha, with the the front, they both have that sort of crazy pixie shoe design. <laughs> to put it uh, across in a different way, they just both seem very sharp. And I know that's obviously because of these sort of like aquadynamics or whatever it's called, but or hydrodynamic nature of the vehicles. But they do seem to complement each other in that regard. They're very different from, say, the um, water moccasin. Yeah, which has a very different design. It's very yeah. squared off, and which well, it's it's more of a riverine boat because it is an air-powered vessel. Not a great deal of the vessel is beneath the water. It has a very shallow draft, so it would be operating in swamps or very shallow waters. Whereas you know, Prana and the Moray, these are open-water vessels. These are sea-going vessels. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I don't think. The piranha would necessarily uh, sway my answer simply because it would be dispatched in much the same way as the moray. It's a harder to hit target, but it would have to get really close to engage the Shark 9000. And once it's close, it's cannon fodder or chain gun fodder. Those dorsal mounted miniguns are its biggest nemesis. Because if you want to get a broadside shot on the Shark 9000, one of the gunners is going to chew you up. No, very true. The element would still stand in. You've got this one little craft coming at you really fast, guns blazing. Uh, which one are you going to turn your attention to? You know, you're okay, not so say the, the Piranha drills the side of the Shark 9000 with their pop-in, pop-out machine gun emplacement. No, that's not even the name of the machine gun. That's the name of the emplacement station. Goodness, <laughs> these blueprints are just a mess. Things started to fall apart in the 90s. But uh, in any case, it might as well try and fire off its missiles. It's got two surface-skimming, low-noise concussion missiles. Mm. And then it is equipped with two side-mounted torpedoes. Yes. I mean, once again, the shark's speed would probably keep it out of danger of being hit by the missiles and the torpedoes. That's once again a case of the piranha being equipped to engage large vessels sink bigger ships. In the case of the Shark 9000, you know, the second you've actually fired off those bad boys, the Shark is not where it was. 
and sadly with missiles and torpedoes, it's not a machine gun. You can't draw a bead. You, yeah. <laughs> you're either very good at judging distances or very lucky or both. And uh, I don't think the shark and its crew are going to be very forgiving if you're not. So the piranha is trying to drill the shark 9000. Say she does get some lucky shots in. The weapons are not of a large enough caliber to sink her. They would probably deal some damage, maybe uh, injure or kill the dorsal gunner. Assuming that's taken place, I mean, it's only a matter of time before that big 20 is brought to bear. Which would naturally have a slower rate of fire, but it would certainly hem the piranha captain in a bit. Uh, limit his options and allow the Shark 9000 to maneuver to get another shot in with the other dorsal minigun. At least that's how I would play it if I was cutter in that situation. Or you could have the little devilfish sneak up behind and drill the piranha with its twin auto-feed guns. I don't think the devilfish really offers anything extra to this fight. <laughs> she's fast. She can do 43 knots. Yeah, she's fast, but she's not as fast as the piranha, though. But she can probably turn circles inside of the piranha. So she can, yeah, bring, think... she can bring guns to bear on the piranha a lot quicker than the piranha can bring guns to bear on the devilfish. Yeah, that's the advantage right now, it seems, of the Joe vehicles, that they have better maneuverability, while the Cobra vehicles in this fight are much faster. Mm. So the Cobra's tactics would be more for try and hit and run, basically try and take them out in the first pass, get out of there as fast as you can. If that was the scenario, I'd say Cobra all the way. I mean, if the Cobras were bearing down on the Joes, moving at a blinding speed, I mean, we're talking about 100 knots here, we're talking about, like, faster than a light aircraft. You know, they would absolutely decimate the Joes. Or maybe that kind of speed would make their closing speed so quick that, you know, it'd be difficult to get accurate shots placed. So there's a possibility Cobra could come out on top, but I'm saying that the balance of probability is in favor of the Joes at this point. It does feel like that. It's such a close fight to call. So would you draw it? I would draw it, because for me, at least, the Hydrofoil and the Shark 9000, they're basically counterparts to each other in the way that their armaments are set up, the type of things that they have. Even though the Shark 9000 is almost a decade newer. Think about that. Hmm. The technology would be much better in the Shark 9000. Yeah, but, I mean, would Cobra allow their vehicles to stagnate like that? In terms of a seagoing vessel, I mean, a good... Ship hull is a good ship hull. It'll be a good ship hull 10 years from now. It'll be a good ship hull 20 years from now, as long as it's well-maintained. I'm sure the onboard electronics package, if there is one, is upgraded along with all of Cobra's tech. And certainly the weaponry, I mean, this stuff is standard. I mean, it is it is not getting any better. Like, this is cutting edge in 1985. It would be cutting edge in 1994. It's their good weapons. I mean, I'm talking about the conventional Yeah, the caliber. I mean, it's not weapons. like that hasn't changed in, like, years. The, the missiles, fair enough. Their guidance system and propulsion systems may be upgraded. But, I mean, this contest would primarily be one of, of a gunfight and not yeah. decided by ordnance. These aren't jets that are dogfighting each other with sidewinders and sparrows. These are boats that are popping caps at each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think in a head-on pass, Cobra would take it, but in the multitude of different permutations of how these contests would play out, 
I think sort of nine times out of ten, I would give it to Joe. Or maybe not that much of a landslide, like six times out of ten. And that means I am in Joe camp tonight. Yeah, I think for this fight, yeah, Joe Joe wins it most of the time. If I had to get drunk on either of these vessels, I'd rather get drunk on a moray. It looks a lot safer, yeah. It does, hey? Yeah. You can't just fall off there. It's actually weird how Cobra is actually considered crew safety on yeah, the Yeah, drunk crew safety. Yeah. But there's a lot to bang your head on, fellas. No, true. I mean, even I mean, in the, the, the pilot's and co-pilot seats, you've got that bloody gunner's legs dangling and that stupid railing that he puts his feet on. I mean, that's... Oh, man, it's so cluttered. The Shark 9000 has a great open area where the pilot, co-pilot, and gunner sit. It's very difficult for them to move around, from what I can see. It's, it's a nice uh, rectangular open space. It's quite an open-plan little deck there and you could stand on top of the um shark peter storage bay i don't know i think you judged the the shark a bit too harshly you no, it, flip down the the front landing ramp and kind of use say, that, that a landing ramp <laughs> you can use that to dive into the water i mean the shark oh, 9000 it's got parties in mind so i think you called it wrong paulie no. it is a party boat it is a catamaran <laughs> i just love the idea kind of knows how to cut loose no, I suppose you know, <laughs> to cut the rug. You said that already. Yeah, I know. Boring, Paul. Boring. Okay, so definitively... G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe wins the seas tonight. G.I. Joe has won on the sea, which means that the scores are tied with three victories to Joe and three victories to Cobra, which means the deciding round will now be fought in the snow. The vehicles under consideration for round two are, in the G.I. Joe corner, the venerable and legendary Snowcat, and the oddball but equally devastating Avalanche. And in the Cobra corner, (laughs) naturally we have the Cobra Wolf, Winter Operations Land Fighter, or Winter Operations Light Fighter. There is a discrepancy. And... In complement to the wolf, we have the Ice Saber. Another very, very cool Cobra vehicle. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> very um, cool and very sci-fi looking. And very yeah. ex- very exposed. I mean, <laughs> of the vehicles under consideration, you got to be tough as nails to be operating an Ice Saber in minus 20 degrees or whatever the Mercury will dip to in our chosen arena. Well, opening round, once again, uh, G.I. Joe's got some hidden aces that Cobra can't really match. The Avalanche, being a snow tank, is very, very adept in dealing with all kinds of terrain, be it frozen tundra, be it ice, be it deep snow, and it's got an aircraft. Granted, it's more of a reconnaissance plane, it's not carrying any heavy weaponry, but an eye in the sky might be what swings it in favor of G.I. Joe for me. To be able to spot your enemies, close on them, and perhaps also create a bit of a trap for them. I mean, if you've got an idea of your enemy's location and their heading, you might be able to head them off of the pass, where the avalanche's other payload, its snow mines, can come into play. Mines made out of snow. Brilliant. No, mines deployed in thin, powdery snow. Ah. Set to go off, even if the very lightweight wolf is to uh, ski over it. 
Yeah. But the wolf has skipedos. But so, that, that, so does the snowcat. Yeah, but the wolf's skipedos are cooler. <laughs> Sorry, they are. They look like the sharks of the snow. It's cool. They even have spoilers to keep them from flying off. Let's talk about the wolf for a bit. It's one hell of a fast little snow tank, that. Yeah, that bad boy's fast. It's essentially a jet on skis. It's got two jet engines, okay? That is its primary... I heard it, Bombay. (laughs) Now you know. It's got twin rear guns and a one-man drone, and it's on the lookout for G.I. Joe. Maybe not. This is not the Raven, gents. We talked about that already. (laughs) I think it was episode 12. (laughs) Memory serves. Anyway. Yes. So the Wolf, it's fast. I mean, hands down, it's the fastest vehicle under consideration. Apart from the Avalanche's aircraft, which could probably go as fast, I'm assuming. I don't know. It's quite a stretch to call that thing an aircraft, for me still. (laughs) It's kind of like a hovercraft, almost. Like, it just hovers in the air, like a UAV, kind of. Don't you think it evokes the Hunter Killers from Terminator? There's some element of that there. I mean, that's how I imagine it flies, that each of those wings have some kind of propulsive force. I can see that. It just every time I look at it, I keep thinking that the guy who designed the Mamba designed the Avalanche, <laughs> and he's got the same idea. He's like, "I want to kill somebody with this thing, and it's not the enemy," because <laughs> <laughs> that thing's just like waiting to die. Suspension of disbelief and all that. I do think that it would move like a hunter killer. I don't think that it could get great altitude. There's not a lot on it that says that it can really get altitude. There's the AGP and there's other like hovercraft style vehicles. And I know some people, like for example with the bug, they like to take the bubble part of the bug and they imagine that that flies. It doesn't. I'd Um, like to think so. (laughs) If that can't fly, then what the hell are the twin 50 cals mounted underneath it's supposed to do? You know, it is a mystery. And I'm looking forward to talking about that one in a future episode. I mean, I'd like <laughs> to think that the Bugs Bug, the Bugs Scout sub can fly because then it's just like a two-man trouble bubble. Yeah. How, how cool is that? Yeah, I mean, it does have that appeal. I just think that coming back to the Avalanche, you got a one-man in trouble bubble. Like, I get it. I think it makes sense in terms of you take the Avalanche somewhere high and you let this thing sort of like shoot off and it flies and it does like a recon sweep. And I definitely think that. That gives the Avalanche something that most tanks don't have. It has its own personal recon ability. I mean, it can survey the terrain before it gets itself into a dangerous position. And snow is quite an unpredictable terrain to be in, especially if you're a tank, a very heavy tank at that. Oh, I think snow's pretty dangerous if you're a very fast-moving light vehicle. If the wolf was to hit a hidden frozen piece of ice, or I mean a boulder or a rock or something... That's tickets, man. It's light armor and it's immense speed would just plaster that thing. Yeah, I've got visions of uh, TIE fighters hitting asteroids and speeder bikes <laughs> hitting trees. Uh, I kind of see it <laughs> happening like that. But, you know, let's not, let's not lose sight of the fact that ice vipers, who are the wolf drivers or pilots, as you might want to call them, are very adept in reading the terrain. Mm. And they've got good visibility. The wolf's canopies... By being a bubble canopy, give 270-degree vision. 
another thing about it is uh, it's a two-man vehicle, so it's not one Cobra officer or one Cobra pilot magically doing everything in the vehicle. It's two guys. It's a co-pilot, and that, to me, it, it functions very much like how a helicopter would. The one guy's completely in charge of driving and making sure that he's checking his instruments to make sure that, you know, the terrain and everything is safe where they're going, and and the other dude's just purely, he's just shooting and controlling that turreted gun, and he's in control of all the other, like, bits and bobs. It would be the wolf's task to knock out G.I. Joe's eye in the sky, because the wolf is the one carrying the surface-to-air missiles. Yes. Mm. That's uh, something I wanted to put out there as well. According to the blueprints, the eye in the sky is equipped with cannons. Are we ignoring that, or...? I just didn't see it. I don't know if that's a typo. If you look on the toy itself, it has a thing that lifts up, which is kind of similar to the way that the missiles lift up on the toy. Precisely. At I the mean, back. And they're kind of like rear-facing, if I understand the description correctly, and calling them uh, backblast, defense, dual-pulsating, 55mm cannons. So it does have some bite. Though, a little bit of bite, yeah. To be honest, I'm not sure if that's a typo, because to my mind it looks like the aircraft is armed with two missiles. Yeah, it does look like that. It looks similar enough like the other things, but then where on the Avalanche are... Sadly, the Avalanche is the only toy under consideration that we have no actual flesh and bone experience with. Sorry, dear listeners, I can't give you first-hand accounts of the toy. But let's assume, for this argument, that it has two missiles and two 50 cal machine guns. So all of a sudden, it's not just a recon plane, but it actually would have the capability of taking out one or both of Cobra's snow weapons. I think the problem it would have with doing that is its maneuverability. I don't think it's carrying immense amounts of fuel. I don't think it's going to be able to properly engage with one of them. I think it'd have to choose one of those targets. So yes, I think it's a threat to the Ice Saber. I do think the Ice Saber and the Wolf might face an issue with it. I do feel sorry for I know that that vehicle would die. It would have... feel sorry for it. <laughs> yeah, it would die if it went for the wolf or if it went for the ice saber and the wolf was in close proximity. It would be made and the wolf would take it out. And then the avalanche is minus one aerial-based defense attack. Well, at least it's a little bit lighter that way. <laughs> I suppose it is. <laughs> and then it's only the glass canopy that it has to worry about, which is very unusual for a tank. Mm. Um I understand the Snowcat having it because the Snowcat in a lot of ways is very much a heavily armed conventional vehicle in a lot of ways that's heavily armed and sort of modified. But I find the Avalanche is in some ways a, a little bit of a fish out of water. It's a tank, but it's got things that are very untank-like, like it's got that uh, recon pod that deploys. It's got a glass canopy. That has a low profile, which is you know a bonus for it, which is cool. But I just see it being quite a problem. It also only has... It looks like a rocket launcher, and I'm trying to just check the specs on the gun, on the blueprints here. I can't tell if that's what kind of machine gun that's supposed to be, or that big black gun. I don't know if that's meant to be a chain gun, or if that's a cannon. It just seems... It seems odd. Let's even just forget about the avalanche for a second. Let's say it's deployed its flying reconnaissance plane. It's easier to spot an aircraft in the sky at low altitude than it is to spot a dedicated snow vehicle painted white in the snow on the ground. True. Let's say, for instance, Cobra saw the aircraft and shot it down. All of a sudden, G.I. Joe has some fix on where Cobra is located. 
They know where their plane went down. And if you're using infrared detection systems, those surface-to-air missiles glowed bright hot on your threat detection. It's well established that these vehicles all have very solid IR gear. I mean, you're dealing in cold environments. Anything hot is going to draw a lot of attention. Of course, yeah. Which is probably why the wolf has skis in the first place, so that it can sort of get a bit of a kick and then ski a little bit without having to generate too much propulsion. All right, so it coast. Yeah. Well, if a snowcat has some idea of where the wolf and ice saber are hiding, it's got, I'd like to venture a guess that it outranges at least the wolf's subsidiary armament. I mean, the four missiles that the snowcat is carrying are of a longer range. Yeah, I mean, the snowcat, in in essence, is kind of a SAM site on wheels. Or a surface-to-surface missile launcher. Does it say surface-to-surface? It just says missiles. But then the Ice Saber also has four missiles. Which are also long-range. But to the snowcat's advantage, he knows where the Cobras are. At least he has an idea of where the Cobras are. If the Cobras try and reposition and crank up their engines, then the Snowcats is going to harm them even more. It's going to track their scent. And that's actually its primary focus, in my opinion. I, I've, I've always felt the Snowcat was a more recon, less attack. Well, um, it's armed with quite a payload of ordnance. Yeah. I also see it as kind of a rescue vehicle as well. So it's, Maybe if it had more APC qualities. I know yeah. I've seen custom jobs of the Snowcats which have kind of carved out the back and made it a little four-seater crew area. You could easily convert a Snowcat, but in its standard configuration, this is an attack vehicle. I think of the two forces, the Cobra forces have more speed on their side. Mm. So it's possible that they would maybe not worry so much about their IR signatures and maybe rely more on their speed and getting in there, getting these guys down and out. Mm. And Aggressive tactics, which is Cobra's yeah. thing. Yeah. And also, both the Wolf and the Ice Saber, I mean, they're very well equipped for, like, firing at different angles. I mean, they both have guns that can change angles. You know, they can revolve around, which means that they can move a lot more and still keep speed on both the Avalanche and the Snowcat. The Snowcat, yeah, it has the Snowpedos, but otherwise it's not very well equipped for actually taking on things at speed. The frontal assault, once again, is in favor of Cobra. G.I. Joe would have to use Guile to evade and adopt more of a kind of a, a clever tactic. Yeah, of, like a of, cat and mouse game. Yeah. Sort of like they have to position themselves well enough, they have to know where Cobra is. Mm. So I think using Subterfuge, Joe would probably have it, but Cobra at a all-out attack moving through terrain. And also, I think the Cobra vehicles are smaller, so they would probably be able to move through trees and underbrush, that sort of stuff, a lot easier, avoiding hitting things. And they both, I think, are lighter as well. I mean, both of the Joe vehicles look very slow. Mm-hmm. They both have, you know, tank tracks. I mean, I know the Ice is is tracks, but mm, I mean... But so would a Battle Bear. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. ski-mobiles, or snowmobiles, I should say, are very fast things, in spite of the very fact nimble. that they use tank tracks. And in that vein, I wouldn't discount the speed that Snowcat and Avalanche can achieve, but it's nothing compared to what the Sabre and the Wolf can Yeah. And also moving fast for the Joes is a disadvantage because it makes it more difficult for them to lock onto their targets. Yeah. Cobra would also do fairly well if they were chased. I don't think Joe can boast the same thing. If Joe were being pursued by two Ice Sabres or one Ice Saber, the Ice Saber would do some considerable damage to a Snowcat or a Avalanche. At yeah, least on definitely. A six, definitely. 
you know, it's got the four missiles, it's got the forward-facing gun right at the front. Yeah. And it's got those two very big chain guns, basically. And if Cobra were pursued, they both have sort of a rear-firing complement, it seems. Okay. Um, no, they don't. Doesn't the Ice Saber's guns re- uh, go all the way to the back? They can swivel to the back. But you don't really see very well uh, dead on your six. But you no, see, that's neither fine. of them you are designed to, to be computer controlled, though. Oh, okay. it doesn't matter. You're just blind firing anyway. You're just mm. hoping whatever you're shooting at. I mean, you know, both of your pursuers would have glass canopies, even though yeah. they're armored eventually. I think if Cobra was being pursued, even if the Joes had numerical superiority, if the Joes had like you know a whole host of avalanches and snowcats up against just a pair of wolf and saber complements. The Cobras would be foolish to not about face and turn into the attack. Yeah. Because their mm. good frontal weapons complement would cut a path for them. Definitely. It's like, it's like the Thunder Machine, for instance. It is unbeatable in a head-on pass. It's got yeah. nothing covering its flanks and even less covering its rear. I mean, you take one shot at the jet engine, that thing's gonna be a burning hunk. Burning husk. Not hunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a burning wow. husk. And, uh, so much of that is invested in Cobra's philosophy. I think it is ingrained in Cobra vehicle operators that as long as they are bearing down on target, no matter how vastly outnumbered they are, they will triumph. They will cut through their enemy. And that is the whole philosophy. That is how these vehicles are designed. Yeah. Their speed, their good frontal armament. I'd hesitate to say that the Ice Saber, in fact, has a better chance of surviving a head-on pass than a wolf does simply because it uses a sort of clamshell armored portion as opposed to two high-visibility uh, bubble canopies. Oh, and it's got a slightly more of a sloped front, whereas Which the Wolf, I think it's designed more like an airfoil to push down, yeah. uh, to keep it from taking off when it engages its jet uh, engines. So it's got a higher angle of slope. The other thing, uh, just to point out with the Ice Saber, it's kind of dangerous for the pilots, and I know that this is not always that thrilling to hear, but those two red guns on the Ice Sabers definitely seem to be troublesome for the two guys that would hide in those little nooks. The on alcoves, the, the, the alcoves, al- alternate driver positions. Yeah, I think you could very easily shoot yourself by accident. Well, the no. guns are computer-controlled. <laughs> Shielded turret with computer-controlled target finders. So, I mean, it's not possible for you to for you actually hit yourself. And the cool thing is that if it does get really cold, you're being kept warm by the heat of the guns. Yeah, true. <laughs> and the Ice Saber is fast and it's very well protected. I mean, okay, not against cold, but that space that they're sitting in, yeah, it's a dual titanium protective plating. Okay, it's angled and it's made of titanium. They're actually, I mean, they're sitting pretty in there. Um, oh, it makes me miss my ice saber so much. I was about to say, it makes me miss my ice ice saber so much too, and I don't even have one. Go. <laughs> uh, here's a thought: Do you think that maybe the ice saber was supposed to be a bigger vehicle? Because up until recently, um, I always thought it was. I didn't realize it was actually so small. Yeah, it's just a three-man seater thing, really. That's I it. think the ice saber's design, to me at least, looks like it should be smaller. If I base it purely on the blueprints, I imagine a single pilot sitting in there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That. The fact that it has this this quite quite large cavernous circular space, 
and the gimmick of being able to rotate your pilot. It's nice. I don't think it's that necessary, really. I'd rather it have yeah. three positions, essentially. Like, uh, you know, a, a forward position, which is the, clearly the pilot, and then two weapons control officers who sit also facing forward. The gimmick is that. It is a gimmick. I mean, as the box blurb would say, you know, the seat swivels to allow another battle-hardened Cobra warrior to take the controls, whatever. I mean, it's basically designed to relieve the guy who's up front. Mm. But those yeah, guys, they don't it's... have the most optimal position to utilize the guns. I think if they were facing outwards, like directly 90 degrees outwards, or even facing forwards, they'd be more effective at their task. There's also good redundancy, because if one of those guys gets killed, you just swivel around and another guy can pilot, and you still mm. have someone else to handle the guns. True that. You'll less likely be faced with the scenario that the driver caught a stray bullet and now the whole vehicle is immobilized. Because yeah, I mean, that's the advantage for the Cobras in this fight, is that there's always more than one person in that vehicle. Mm. Well, with the Joes, it's piloted by one person. Well, the yeah, Avalanche, yeah. Avalanche is two, but still, I mean, with the guys to dump the helicopter to get back into the main vehicle. Yeah, there's no deck in the back situation. I think, for me at least, this fight definitely goes in favor of Cobra. For me too. Yeah. Seconded and thirded. Don't get me wrong, I love the Snowcat. I think it's one of my favorite toys in the line, easily. And even our discussion about the Avalanche has got my interest peaked on it. And I've never, like, hated the Avalanche. It's never been, like, oh, like a port of call, but it, it, it's definitely a bit brighter. I've never owned an Ice Saber, but I have always wanted one. And I have a Wolf, and the Wolf is also a really fantastic vehicle. It's such a odd design, but it's actually very clever in a lot of ways. Mm. And, and as we've discussed, I do think that the wolf and the ice saber as working together or maybe working by themselves in their own little squads would definitely pose a serious threat to G.I. Joe. And I, I think G.I. Joe would really have to work hard to get out. I think G.I. Joe's strategy would be all about getting themselves um, hidden and you know moving very stealthily or very slowly. In that situation, if they have the advantage of setting themselves up, Knowing that uh, cobras are coming through the area, yeah, <laughs> you know they can they can set themselves up. They can use a little recon jet. They know when they're coming. They've got the mine set out. They have the lines of fire already. The mines start exploding. They start blasting away with all their guns. In that situation, I think Joe has the advantage. But mm-hmm. seven, eight out of ten times, I think cobra <laughs> definitely takes this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh, well, in that case, it brings our scores up to four victories in favor of Cobra to three victories in favor of G.I. Joe. Cobra, well, once again, comes out on top. <laughs> That's well, right. Cobra yeah, I mean, Joe equaled it for a little bit there. That equaled it. But, yeah, Cobra still has the advantage. But after all of this discussion, I like I kind of want an avalanche because it looks very practical and real world-ish. Just the shape of it and the... I mean, it's not overly complex in what it has, except for maybe the ice launcher. Rob, what have you been smoking? You, you're you saying the avalanche looks real world-ish? Well, I, I just like because it basically looks like a tank. I it mean, does. It does. And I like it because of its fantasy element. The aircraft... It makes for a fun toy. You've got Avalanche up front, front doing tank stuff. And then I would put a guy like Windmill, you know, an experimental aircraft or chopper pilot 
in the back. Or who is it who flies the Vector? Not the Vector. Oh, yeah, the Vector. Maverick. Battle yeah. Force 2000 guy. Mm. Or Blaster, the hovercraft pilot. You know, one of those guys in the back there. It's a far-fetched... <laughs> Kill the Battle Force 2000. Kill the shit out of them. I think it's far-fetched to me, Rob. I don't think it's terribly real world, if you ask me. Oh, well, you know, we... Can agree to disagree? Tato, yes, exactly. I, but, my I, earliest memory involving the Avalanche is seeing it in Harrods in Knightbridge in London. I saw this cool box art. I was, it really grabbed my attention more than anything else. And let me tell you, there was a lot to grab an eight-year-old's attention at that store. I mean, they had the hammerhead, all right? Hello, little boy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they had the hammerhead. They had the hammer. They had a whole bunch of the 1990 Joe vehicles. But the Avalanche just grabbed me, man. It grabbed me hard. I just didn't yeah, have I'm... the money for it at the time. The box art is brilliant. And also on the box art, it kind of confirms that what the little helicopters equipped are missiles. Okay. All right. It's got like missiles coming out there. Although, weirdly enough, on your Joe, on the, one of their pictures when they show the complement of stuff it comes with, they only showed six missiles. When, if it does come with those missiles with the helicopter, it should come with eight. I don't know. Maybe the guy just decided not to show them off. I think by 1990, whoever was compiling the various paraphernalia, yeah, they were starting to smoke some good stuff. Well, they just yeah. weren't taking as much cognizance of what they were actually writing. They were like, ah, oh, whatever, someone will someone will get excited about this stuff. It, well, it doesn't well, have to be well-researched or wait, intelligent. Actually, <laughs> actually, I made a mistake. I counted wrong. There are eight. <laughs> but yeah, Steve has right. got a point there, because this vehicle was not prominently used, but it was in the Deke series. And if you turn your attention to yojo.com, you'll see that the picture of the avalanche from the Deke series is traversing the desert. <laughs> so oh, nice. why not? If it's built to handle one unforgiving environment, it should be able to be... Uh, what's the opposite of winterizing? Um, summarizing? Yes, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> I see what you did there. I know, but right? I think, and Steve, you and I have dis- discussed this many times, and I'm sure Rob and Steve have discussed this many times, but the Snowcat also lends itself well to being a desert vehicle. In some ways, it lends itself to being a desert vehicle better than a snow vehicle. Mm, agreed. The half-track design might uh, be good on rocky terrains, be good on tundra, be good on frozen earth, but... If you get into really deep snow, if there's been a dump of snow nearby, oh, fresh powder. You, 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 you're stuck. I'd love to see a custom venture where someone's actually taken an existing snowcat and attached skis to the front mm, to sort of make a snowcat cool. convert. And it'd be nice if those skis could sort of slip over the tires. So yeah. essentially they would would turn with the tires, uh, with the wheels steering column. In its own way, mirroring what the wolf does. Oh, yeah. Then you just have to light up your ski pedos, link a fuel supply to them, and then you can kind of rocket along <laughs> the frozen landscape, just like a wolf. Which is pretty cool in its own right. Uh, no, so, it's, it's completely far out. Far, far out, but it's pretty cool still. But, yeah, Rob, I'm starting to find favor with you, man. The, the Avalanche... It's a cool-looking toy. It's an attractive, dedicated G.I. Joe snow tank. I kind of want one now. 
doesn't have much going for it beyond its function as a snowcat. This is not a utility vehicle. This is not a troop carrier of any description. I mean, it carries two very dedicated crewmen. But it's out there to take a beating and keep on eating, meeting, eating, <laughs> keeping on, eating. In a weird way, it's kind of like a modern Havoc, like an upgrade from the Havoc. Mm, yeah. In a weird way. Sorry. Except the driver gets to sit upright. I did a small Google search, and somebody's actually set up a little diorama for themselves, featuring none other than two wolves going up against the snowcat and an avalanche with a battle bear that's been taken out. So that's pretty cool. Yay. Somebody's on topic, as it were. I'm sure a lot of people out there feel the same way we do. I like the design of the avalanche being quite low slung. Yes. You might think that the driver is very exposed, but he's quite deep down there. I mean, your angle of engaging him is limited. I mean, yeah, let's face it. Yeah, he's very deep in there. If mm. you if you hit any of these vehicles with an anti-tank missile, no matter where you hit it, uh, it's, it's finished. I mean, these are light fighting vehicles. But, yeah, Avalanche is an attractive okay. white hunk of plastic. Well, I'm looking on eBay right now, and I found several Avalanches. And there's one example where the guy says it was definitely in a smoke-free environment with no sunlight. <laughs> But the toy is so discolored. It is not white anymore. It's like yellowy, off-white. Oh, my God, it's disgusting. So it's a deserted avalanche. (laughs) Basically, yeah, you could take this in the desert. It's so weird. I suppose it's open to customizing, then. And prices seem to vary as well, between, like, a 1,000 rand and, like, 400 rand. Mm. Or up, even. I see. Well... It does sell itself on the gimmick of the central aircraft, but nevertheless, yeah, it is a like, lot of fun. It's like a snow rhino. rhino. Mm, exactly. Maybe that's probably why I like it so much now. <laughs> yeah, I like the rhino quite a bit myself. So. Yeah, me and you are like huge fans of the rhino. Except yeah, unlike the rhino, this will feel like a vintage G.I. Joe toy. Yeah, that, true. that never really mattered to me. A vehicle is a vehicle. Have you ever seen how cool the steering wheel looks? I've been looking at pictures. Yeah, it's very cool. It's like a, it's like a double-handed thing. Like it's you a... got to get both your hands on it and grip it yeah. hard. It looks like something from Star Wars. Like something hard. you'd find inside a <laughs> TIE fighter's cockpit. Definitely inside that TIE fighter's cockpit. You have two hands. Just put both of them on there and just start jerking it and moving it around. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing about the Avalanche, the instructions refer to the aircraft as an attack craft. Yes. This thing's out there to kill. Kill Cobra. Die. I think, you know, once again, that that might swing it. We assume that it is a low-level attack craft, but at a high altitude, far out of visual range, if she spots your wolf or saber, they're going down, man. Yeah, they're in for a world of hurt, definitely. The attack craft has two... Very good shots at taking them out. And even if it isn't going to give away its position by firing on the wolf and saber, it could report back their locations. Mm. So while I'm not about to swing my votes, that is definitely a tactic that G.I. Joe could employ. It's very cool, except also on the blueprints, all the missiles that the Avalanche are equipped with are surface-to-air missiles. Ah, I see. Well, at least it's supplementing G.I. Joe's Arctic complement in that sense. I mean, this is a support vehicle. If that's the case, it is a support vehicle. It is used for reconnaissance using its aircraft. 
attack using its aircraft, uh, laying mines and defending against enemy aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, and it has a... replacement weapon, yeah. And has an awesome ammo-regenerating freeze-boss cannon. (laughs) Mr. Freeze (laughs) just designed his own evil villain vehicle. This is... Ice shards. Better yet, a freeze ray. (laughs) Well, G.I. Joe really went quite eco in the 1990s. How unfortunate would it be if, like, a woodchuck got sucked up into that? You know, it's just like chilling out there in the snowy tundra and mm, gets sucked up with some bunnies in snow and snow. <laughs> it's like a red snowball. <laughs> That's horrible and funny. Yeah, and some like hard up ice viper scrapes it off his canopy. He's like, mm, I shan't go hungry tonight. Yeah, because they're badass. Ice vipers. And snow serpents are just badass. Totally, man. Oh, cool. well, folks, I think that's a wrap on episode 27. Cobra wins again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Cobra. Cobra. Love it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to check out our new YouTube channel. We should have about three videos up by the time this podcast is released. Or if you're listening to it a year from now. Well, go check out our YouTube channel. We've probably got a hundred videos setting the ball really high. That's all I have to say about that. Hopefully we'll have some new product to talk about in the next episode. Or uh, old product. I've been holding off, but I've gotten a few vintage things recently. Yeah. I'll save that for episode 28. Yeah, so we, yeah, there we go. So something else to look forward to. And uh, hopefully by the next episode, I'll have my new sideshow, uh, Major Blood. Which I'm quite excited about. Um, despite all the negative reviews, negative press it's been getting, but I don't think I've ever really encountered a sideshow toy that doesn't get negative press from fans complaining about the most inane things. But yeah, so that's something cool to look forward to. I'm excited. I've been dying for a sideshow figure. I haven't had a new one in a while. So you might want to hit up our G.I. Joburg video reviews for a full review on that one soon too Just Paul pretty- has nominated himself as the reviewer for Sideshow because he is the Dalai Lama the Dalai Lama joined by my faithful Dalai Lama companion Rob who has a Zartan <laughs> in 12, uh, all 12 inches of Zartan definitely I, I, I grip it hard <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Your choice of homoerotic humor disturbs me. <laughs> Don't be a hater of homos, dude. I'm sure there's some good ones out there. <laughs> <laughs>